Welcome to That Whole Thing Podcast, exploring what it means to live in wholeness. I'm your host, Ben DeLong. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you everybody for for listening to That Whole Thing Podcast, and I am so glad to be joined once again by... um, uh, an author that I have enjoyed and who has become a friend of mine, Brian McLaren. Thank you, Brian, so much for coming on again. Hey, great to be with you again, Ben. Yeah, so um, Brian was on here um, if you listened a few episodes ago and um, just talked about a gamut of things and, and his books and different thoughts that he's that he's written about. Um, but today we're, we're going to focus on a new book that he has coming out called Faith After Doubt. And um, I got to read a review copy, and um, just it's pretty pretty much par for the course for the for the books that you write. Mm-hmm. I, very engaging, very thought provoking, and I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks, Ben. <laughs> um, so I think yeah, since we since I got to have you on a few episodes ago, we'll um, we'll let people listen to that if if they want to kind of hear about your story and stuff, and we'll just jump right into the book. Sounds great. Um. So the book, as I said, is called Faith After Doubt, and um, this, this is definitely something that a lot of people journey with and struggle with, even, even people who, um, you know, may not go, go to this, the different stages, and we'll talk about that later, but, yeah. but like people wrestle with that sometimes, and um, I love there was um, somebody that you spoke to that you uh, included in the book, and they talked about um, feeling this, having this um, just a stressor of feeling like they either have to stay in the fortress of certainty of yeah. what they've grown up with, or they have to go into meaninglessness, and they just yes. felt like it was one or the other. And and I know a lot of people, I, in my church experience, it was like it's okay to deal with doubts as long as you come back to where you started, you know, yes. like and. But um, your book really does this beautiful, uh, beautiful job of showing where the places that doubt can can lead us to. Um, so w- one thing that you talk about is how doubt is connected to different parts of the brain, which I thought yeah. was really fascinating and really helpful. Would you mind talking about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So th- the first thing I need to say about this, Ben, is that uh, anybody who's a psychologist or a neurobiologist or whatever, they'll tell you the brain is so complicated and we don't know how how it works. But there there are various schemas, various ways that people try to take what we know and simplify it. Um, And one of the theories of the brain that's made the most sense to me is called the modular brain. And, Mm -hmm. And different scientists posit different numbers of modules from you know, I've heard from 60-some to 120-some. Mm. Um, but what uh, I think, to simplify that, people talk about three main parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the oldest part of our brain, uh, it, the, the part that we share with fish and reptiles and all other animals, is uh, all other higher animals, is, uh, is they often call the reptilian brain. And yeah. this is the part of our brain that really is the most highly developed, and it's, it's oriented around survival. Mm-hmm. Uh, some mm-hmm. people call it the instinctive brain because it, it responds by reflex and reactivity. Right. So 
you put your hand on a stove and you don't think, oh, my hand is getting hot. I should take it away. Your hand pulls away before you even realize that it's hurt. Yeah. And uh, so that's this part of our brain that's oriented towards survival. It's very oriented toward fear and danger. Um, and then we have, uh, and also very oriented toward pleasure and reward. Um, then we, we have another part of our brain, people call the mammalian brain. Uh, and it's the part of our brain, when you think about mammals, especially herd animals, um, it, it's the part of our brain that's super oriented toward our socialization and oriented toward the, the emotions by which we connect with groups. It starts most primarily with every baby and his or her mother. Uh, and that all the bonds of affection that then extend to the father and the siblings and our extended family and, and so on. So that's the second part of our brain, very oriented toward belonging. And then we have this uh, part of the brain that we call it's more advanced. Well, it's more advanced in terms of comparing it to all other brains, but in some ways it's the newest member of the brain committee. <laughs> and uh, it, it's what sometimes people call the primate brain, but it's the part of our brain that we think of uh, as being analytical and rational. So you think about these three brains and we were only really conscious of the, uh, the rational analytical brain most of the time, but those other two deeper parts of our brain are operating. And, and as I said in the book, uh, when, you, when you have doubts, it affects you on all three levels. Your doubt, let's say you might have an intellectual doubt that arises in that primate part of your brain, your intellectual part of your brain. Um, you think, oh, this just doesn't make sense. This, I, I know some evidence against this. Uh, I find it hard to accept this. And, um, but as soon as you have that thought in that conceptual part of your brain, the belonging part of your brain kicks in and says, oh my gosh, if I accept this doubt, then my church might reject me and think that I'm a liberal or a heretic. I could be in so much trouble. And then you think, then the more reptilian part of our brain, and that would be dangerous. If I were kicked out of my church, I'd be alone. I'd be in trouble. And maybe God would be mad at me and I would go to hell. And you know, you can just see those three, I call it the three members of the brain committee having raucous arguments about any time that a doubt comes up yeah yeah it's really fascinating and it um i i think what it really brought to light for me is that um we you know a lot of times different people tap into different parts of their brain differently yes, yes. and and so we have like you know, a lot of us will experience doubts, but we may have doubts for completely different reasons. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Some of us, our doubts are going to be intellectual. I can think of other people, their primary doubts were on that mammalian level, on that relational level. Mm -hmm. Their their church required them, let's say, to reject gay people, but their best friend at school was, was gay. Or yeah. their church told them that anyone who wasn't a Christian is going to hell but their best friend in their neighborhood is Jewish and mm. they just can't bear to think that God would love them and not love the friend that they love so much. And yeah. so that, that sort of static and disconnect and discomfort and that level of relationship and belonging could be a primary, uh, primary danger. I'll tell you, I also think on that deeper level of survival, um, especially these days, you find so many religious people who refuse to accept the reality of climate change. 
Right. And, and then for other people whose brains, you know, they've grown up knowing that this reality of climate change is something we have to grapple with. Um, for them to meet people who don't even believe it's real and don't care about doing anything about it, you can see how that would affect your sense of survival. You would think mm, yeah. being around these people is dangerous <laughs> to my, <laughs> my survival. So, you know, when we think about doubts, it's, they're happening on all these different levels. It, yeah. it, it's discomfort on all these different levels. And pretty quickly, one feeds into the other. And that's why I think doubt is so stressful. It's, yeah. It yeah. creates what psychologists call cognitive dissonance, creates these, these major uh, negotiation se se sessions with different parts of our brain. Yeah. Well, and you could see how if you, if you felt like something, you know, if somebody didn't believe how you believed and you felt like that was somehow threatening survival, then it, it kicks in behaviors that maybe you don't even are, you're not even aware of. Yes. And and then you and you can definitely see that, you know, with our political landscape right now, that that people are just reacting, you know, many times with vitriol. Um and, and a lot maybe a lot of that is like a survival mechanism for them. Yes, and especially if their authority figures um tell them those people who didn't vote like you, mm. they hate you. Yeah. And they want to destroy you and they want to destroy your way of life and they hate God and all this, you know, mm, people yeah. are told all kinds of things yeah. um, on, on all sides, you know, people yeah, are, yeah. Were, in fact, I, I wrote another book about this uh, called Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha and Muhammad Cross the Road? But in that book, I talked a lot about how groups often build unity and loyalty among us by creating fear and hostility toward them. Mm -hmm. and if we're afraid of them, then people will be more likely to stay unified with us. You know? yeah. And all of these things tap into our survival mechanisms. And, and then, but then we meet people who are supposed to be terrible and they turn out to be wonderful people. And yeah. now suddenly we have other kinds of reasons for doubt. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Well, and it, it made me think too, um, you know, you've you've written a lot about, and we talked about last time, just the whole um, postmodern shift, and yes. and how different, you know, when we um, encounter different um, like revolutions of information or whatever it is, it makes us think differently. Whether it be the internet or how we travel, things like that, and um, and you know, it happened in the past with the Reformation, all that stuff, yeah. and and now. Um, and I don't know if this neuroscience understanding is, I, maybe I'm like just getting on board with it, but it seems like, well, like you said, what we don't really don't understand, like, but we're having new understanding all the time yes. and it's changing how we're thinking. Yeah. 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 That's why this idea of the modular brain makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, you, uh, there are a lot of different ways that researchers come to this, but one is you notice that if a person has a stroke, they lose certain of their abilities and not others. Well, then they mm -hmm. think, okay, the part of the brain where there was that, that blood clot that was damaged, then we know, oh, that part of the brain controls this. Mm. Well, what makes the brain so interesting is you might have these, I would call them sub-modules that then are linked together in larger modules. And then those modules are linked together in even larger modules. And, and so the brain is this phenomenally complex uh, uh, you know, creation, reality, entity, yeah. 
Yeah. And here, you know, it's what keeps us going. It's what we think with, and yet we don't fully understand how it works. In fact, we, we, we're pretty sure that our understandings are actually contrary to how it really works. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I've done a lot of research in, in, uh, on the subject of bias. And one of the things that you learn when you study bias is that human beings can be absolutely certain of things that are untrue. Yeah. And, and there are patterns to why we're certain and wrong. And, uh, and, and it happens to all of us. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the other things that, that you talk about, um, and I mentioned just a little bit ago is, is these different stages connected with doubt yes. and, and, um, just how they, I mean, and I'll, um, I'll have you explain them, but they, they just, to me, they help explain like not only our own experience and different, you know, different times in our life, but, but also like a lot of our interactions with other people, depending on what stage they're in at, at the time. But, um, yeah, would you want to share about that? Sure. I'd be happy to. And you know, it'd be interesting for me then if uh, maybe I'll share one of the stages and if you have an experience or someplace where this connects with your own life, I, mm. I, it might be interesting to hear. Yeah, that. for sure. Um, uh, the first stage that I talk about in the book is simplicity. And this is the stage that we all are kind of raised into by the time we're two or three or four years old. Mm -hmm. And, and this is the stage simplicity as the, its name says, it's the stage where we divide things into two. Um, mm. us, them, safe, dangerous, family, yeah. not family, friend, enemy, or friend, stranger, mm. um, true, false, uh, uh, God, devil, you know, and, and we see yeah. the world in terms of two. And this is a very necessary stage. It's what keeps children alive. They learn, oh, if you eat this berry, it's delicious. If you eat that berry, it's poisonous. Mm. We better be able to tell the difference. So that need to categorize things is, a, is really a matter of survival. Um, and a lot of people, I think, stay in stage one for their whole lives um, mm. because you, when you're a child, you don't know which berry is dangerous and which is safe, yeah. or you don't know which person is an enemy and which person is a friend. You rely on authority figures, starting mm. with your parents, but then you find that your parents have other authority figures that they trust. So you kind of inherit trust in those authority figures. So yeah. simplicity is very oriented toward uh, uh, that dualism, uh, either or kind of thinking, and authority figures to whom we're either loyal or disloyal. Mm. Uh, and, and of course, you can imagine what God looks like in, in that framework. God is the ultimate authority figure, and God is the one who determines whether things are in which category. Yeah. So, yeah, did that, did that resonate with you from your, uh, your life story at all? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I know that Richard Rohr, he, he talks about how, you know, it's, it's actually, it's easier if it's easier if you do start there. Um, yeah. uh, you know, when, when kids have those clear boundaries and stuff, that's a much easier place to start. And, and we're, we're actually, it's funny cause we, um, our son, he came to live with us, um, when he was 10 and what we adopted him, um, about a little over a year ago. And it's funny because we, we're kind of um, we're kind of bringing him back to stage one, yes, um, yes, because he didn't have those kind of safety measures before, yes, and um, and and he needs to experience that for a while, 
Yes. Um, but yeah, with very much with, um, with faith communities, I mean, that's, that's what, you know, that's what made sense to us for a long time. Um, it's what made sense to the world. And then it, it just, it was, it was easy, you know, in a way that yeah. you, you don't have to, you don't have to think about well, what, what are we going to do about these things going on in the world? Because it's like, well, we, we just have to be right. Yes. You know, that's all that really matters. And, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, you, you mentioned that word authority, um, because that's, you know, as, as you've talked about the postmodern shift and, um, Phil Stickle talked about this a lot as well. Yeah. And, and just, um, this shift that we're going through, we're asking that question, you know, where's our authority? Yes. And, um, you know, a lot of us, and it, it's, it's hard to decipher how much of this is, you know, regular development and how much of it is because of this shift that culturally that we're going through, you know, but, but there is this huge tension of where is our authority right now? Yes. Yes. And, you know, um, this is where it gets both complicated and interesting. If you think an individual goes through various stages, you might think, well, a society also does. In other words, the, uh, the adults of that society, most of them might be at a certain stage. Um, so, yeah. for example, you, you know, you think of a culture where um, women are not allowed to drive. And mm. this is because there are these clear ideas. Men are like this. Women are like this. Men yeah. are allowed to do this. Women, and nobody, nobody questions it. Or if they do question it, they're punished because the authority figures get upset. <laughs> so you could see a whole society might be at stage one. Yeah. And, but then what happens when people grow to a second stage, a stage of complexity? Um, that's the, the term I use for it. Mm -hmm. And this is where those simple dualisms of in, out, us, them start to give way. We start to say, oh, there are kind of shades of gray out there. And, and you know what? There are some of the people who are among us who are supposed to be the good guys, some of them aren't so good. And mm. some of the people among them who are supposed to be the bad guys, some of them aren't so bad. So we just went from having two groups, the good us and the bad them, to having mm -hmm. four groups, the good <laughs> us and the bad us, and the good them and the bad them. Yeah, and then it yeah. just gets comp more and more comp complex. And I think what happens to people in stage two is they start saying, I'm never going to be able to be certain about everything but I at least want to be able to survive. <laughs> I, mm. I want to at least be able to make things work. And yeah. so we, in a sense, we shift from dualism to pragmatism. Mm. What does it take to make things work? How much do I have to know to, to survive? And, mm. uh, and so I know for myself, I, uh, I started moving into stage two right around the time I hit puberty. And, um, <laughs> And sex has a way of doing that to us, I think, because it complicates our sort of child, childish yeah. uh, view of the world. Um, but uh, I, I th think there are an awful lot of Christians who are in stage two. And in fact, I think when I was growing up to be a most, if I could say it this way, the people we would today call evangelicals, most of them were in stage one. I think now a lot of them have moved into stage two. In, in some ways, yeah. the, the megachurch phenomenon is the perfect stage two expression. Of That's what I was thinking of when you were saying that. Yeah. Yep. Tell any other connections you see in your own experience? Yeah, just, um, you know, I, um, as I 
when, when I went to college and I, you know, I went to college for ministry and um, there was, there was a shift for me during that from, you know, how we would say from one to two and, yeah. and, um, you know, and, and in stage one, like we said, it's, it's kind of about being right. And so if, yeah. as long as you're in the right place, like you're okay. Um, but then in stage two, it's there, you know, you mentioned there's this realization that, Oh, may, maybe not, maybe not all of everybody in our group is good. And so then there's emphasis, there's this emphasis on like, like purifying our system. Yeah. Um, and, and like reforming it and trying to make it better. And, yes. and also, you know, that, like you said, the mega church thing and just the, you know, the seeker driven stuff and, and, you know, the, uh, the very, the big emphasis on, you know, trying to win people for Christ, you know, it's, it's kind of yeah. like trying to fix it all. Like, yes, like we're, right. we're going to make it all better. That's right. In fact, I was a pastor for 24 years, and, and I remember in the 1990s when this movement came called the church growth movement, and it was mm -hmm. like there were techniques to fix everything, and there were techniques yeah. to make your church grow, and if you would just do this and do this and do this, your church would grow, and mm -hmm. you would soon be a megachurch, yeah. and, <laughs> and it was uh, very attractive to a young stage two guy like me, um, mm, yeah. and I think a lot of people stay at stage two. Uh, for their whole lives. Um, just one little anecdote from the book you might remember. Uh, in if you get kicked out of stage one church, it's, or if you get fired from a job in a stage one church, you get fired for having the wrong doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, but in stage two, you might be fired for being off-brand. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, in some way not contributing, you didn't achieve your numbers or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so it's a little more corporate in stage two. Um, and then stage two stops working for a lot of people at some point. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's when they move into what I call perplexity or stage three. I, you might say it like this in stage one, you used the word certainty before. In stage one, you want certainty. Yeah. And in stage two, you say, well, if I can't have certainty, I at least want success. And, and in stage <laughs> two, you say, well, if I can't have certainty and I can't have success, I at least want honesty. <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> Let's yeah. be honest about what, what really is going on here. And this desire for honesty and authenticity becomes really central uh, in perplexity. And, and I think most of the people who pick up this book, Faith After Doubt, a high percentage of them will be in stage three in perplexity because they're now feeling all of that angst and pain and concern mm -hmm. that we talked about before. And, and a lot of people come into stage three and then they just lose their faith. They, 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 they don't think there's anything beyond stage three. They've never been told there's anything. All they know of is they've gone beyond what they're allowed to in their yeah. stage. <clears throat> yeah. And it's a very scary place. And what happens to some people is they just say, well, I can never be honest anymore. So I just mm -hmm. have to pretend. Um, and so they sort of fake being stage two, even though they have these deep, deep questions that they either can't confide to anybody or they can only confide to a very few safe people. Yeah. That, have you had any resonance with that? Yeah. And um, something um, we might talk about this more later, but something you mentioned was just the the challenge of somebody who maybe pastoring a church who is in one stage, but they're in a different stage and how difficult that can be. And, um, and I, I recently, I actually recently um, gave up 
uh, my ministry credentials. Um, and, and it was, it was a personal thing. It was, I, yeah. I realized that, um, <clears throat> I realized that being a pastor was almost a coping mechanism for me to just yes. kind of earn God's love. And, yes. um, and so that, that's been a, a big journey for me. Um, yes. but I, I realized looking back that the time that I was a pastor, um, part of why it was so hard was because I was in stage three yes. and, um, probably like what well, everybody there, except there, there was one lady that ended up coming to the church that became a dear friend because she, she was there too. And so we understood each other, yes. um, but, but everybody else was probably one or two. Yes. And, and there was just this huge gap in, in understanding each other and, and, and it's important for us to say, you know, um, stage one people often feel that they're better than stage two and stage three people. And stage two people tend to feel they're maybe a little better than stage one people. And they sort of feel sorry for stage three people. Um, and stage three people sometimes can feel they're better than the stage one and stage two people. Like, you know, these people just haven't researched things the way I have or something like that. Yeah, but, yeah. But each, each in some ways feels a little threatened by the others. And it's very tough when you have people, in, and this is so common because a whole lot of people kind of like the story you told, um, they, uh, they grow up in stage one, they maybe go to stage two when they get to college, mm -hmm. then they go to seminary. And in some, for many people, seminary is their stage three experience. Yeah, yeah. And then they graduate from seminary and the church they're sent to, it, it has people who are in simplicity and complexity and yeah. don't go a step beyond that. In fact, their previous 10 preachers told them to be afraid of that. So yeah, that, I think that accounts for an awful lot of angst that's out there in our churches. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be, I, I think it would help a lot of people just to have awareness of that. Overall, I, I feel like stage three has been, a journey I'm I've been wrestling through for probably about 12 years yeah. and it and it was it was initiated just because of like things just weren't working for me anymore yes. um yeah. I mean I, I I had lots of intellectual doubts for sure but you know it was um you know I got I I struggled um with an addiction to pornography just because a lot of the you know just I felt like crap about myself and yeah and so it's like well this isn't even working, you know, <laughs> like, yes. like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to live this way. Like, like God's supposed to like heal me from this. God's supposed to, you know, give me this peace and love that, you know, I, I just talked to a friend the other day who's uh, he's a fellow author and we were just talking about how, um, you know, a lot of people don't, they don't um, understand what it means to do the work with your yes. internal stuff. And, yes. um, and he, he talks about spiritual bypassing yes. and how, um, you know, the people will say like, well, just pray about it or whatever. And then they'll, you know, they'll, they'll want God to do these miraculous things, but it's really more like magic because it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's like, God, make me, um, help me and my wife to have a more intimate relationship, but I'm not going to do anything about my shame, you know? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, uh, I remember, I heard so many sermons growing up about prayer and how God answers prayer. And so I would think, okay, well, I'm not going to do my homework tonight, because I'm just going <laughs> to pray that God will help me get an A on the test tomorrow. 
And then you realize if that's how prayer worked, prayer would be like the worst thing that could happen to us because mm. it would give us an excuse to be lazy, it would get an excuse to be undisciplined, an excuse to be cowardly. Uh, and, and so you realize, <laughs> oh, life wasn't as simple as they told us, but that's one of the real problems we're facing. If, you know, you can overuse this terminology, but it, our, our stage two churches have decided to market God by saying mm. God will solve all your problems. Yeah, and, yeah. And then when you have a problem that doesn't get solved by prayer or whatever, now you have two problems. First <laughs> is the problem, and then yeah. maybe you have three. First is the problem, <laughs> then is the, the idea that I guess my faith, I don't have strong enough faith, and then you feel shame about that. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's easy to imagine that place in the Gospels where Jesus says, you know, these guys travel over land and sea to make a convert. And they turn mm. him into twice the son of hell he was before. In other words, they, they don't make his life better. They just they make it worse. Not they don't mean to, but that's yeah. that's how it works out. Yeah, yeah. And I should I should probably add then uh, that I think there is this stage beyond perplexity that uh, that ha I think it has been there. In fact, I think you can see this in the life of Paul. I think you can see it in the life of Jesus. You you certainly see it in the. Uh, in the more mystical and contemplative traditions of Christianity, where people talk about going through a dark night of the soul. Mm. So that's a lot like stage three. Yeah. Uh, where all of the things that worked to get you where you are stop, stop working. Yeah. And, um, and you go through this period of letting go and this period of, of doubt and skepticism, and you, but you really want to know the truth. And you mm. really don't want to just play make-believe. And you really don't just want to have people tell you what you want to hear, or you don't want to tell yourself what you want to hear. You yeah. want to try to find, you want to deal with reality. And that's this, the great thing about, about stage three. Um, it, it's a difficult stage, you know, uh, but, um, and, and uh, you know, as someone who's spent s several years there, you know, there's a lot of angst and there's a lot mm. of time staying up in the middle of the night and, uh, and trying to figure out what can I throw away of what I inherited and what do I have to hold on to. And, and, but eventually, I think more and more people are coming to realize, no, there is a way of being a Christian uh, that, that you can move. You don't have to be stuck in stage one, stuck in stage two, stuck in stage three. Mm -hmm. You really can, can keep growing beyond that. And, uh, and that's what the stage I call harmony. How would you describe um, your experience of that stage? Well, you know, my one of my problems was I just didn't even know it existed. Um, I didn't know it existed. I'll, I'll tell you honestly, the first place I ever got a feeling that something like this might exist was not in a religious setting. It was in a college classroom. We were reading a famous poem by the romantic poet William Wordsworth. Uh, uh, it's a poem called Lines Composed by Tintern Abbey. It's usually just called Tintern Abbey. And, um, and he, early on in the, it's a very long poem, but William Wordsworth describes, uh, oh, I, I ought to pull it out so I could actually read the lines. They're so beautiful. But he describes this mystery that rolls through the life of things. And, and he, as you read the poem, you almost feel it oh, there's something deeper than just my ideas about God and all my mm. 
theological arguments and all the complexity, there's something deeper and bigger than all that. And I think what happens as people, and what happened for me, first I had to know that something like that might be possible. Yeah. At moments where I experienced it, I had a few powerful spiritual experiences, but where, where I just realized, you know what this is all about? This is about love. This isn't about certainty and arguments and superiority and, and shame. This is, this is about love. You know, that's what God is about. Yeah. Um, but it took me a long time to ever to, to feel that that was legit because I had been so deeply taught by people in simplicity and complexity that anything that wasn't in those categories yeah. wasn't, wasn't legit, you know. Yeah. Uh, a place, I, I talk about this a lot in the book, but a place where I see this so powerfully in the New Testament is in the book of Galatians where Paul writes that he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything at all. I mean, that is mm -hmm. such a stunning statement. Yeah. It would, it, you know, it's hard to make a comparison, but it might be like saying baptism and the Apostles' Creed don't mean anything at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's how extreme this would have sounded to, to his Jewish contemporaries. Yeah. And then he says, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And so mm -hmm. in, when you, your understanding of faith is, oh, faith is a, a way of orienting myself meaningfully in this life so that I become a more loving version of myself. Mm -hmm. um, when, when you turn toward love in that way, uh, that's it seems to me what really marks the turn uh, into this into this new stage. Now I go I explain in the book that I think you live with that harmony for a while and it becomes your new simplicity, which of oh, course yeah. Yeah. followed by a new complexity. In other <laughs> words, I think these stages are somewhat iterative. But um, uh, but but I think for an awful lot of people, uh, they have never been given permission to dream of something. Uh, beyond the first two stages, and then when they're in the third, then they think there's no place to go from there. I I, I think there's this small transitioning happening in my life from three to four, um, yeah. but it's it's um, it's not it's not coming easily. <laughs> that, and, and you can't rush it. But you know what's very interesting to me um, then is that you made a decision to leave pastoral ministry, although it seems to me you're still doing some pastoral ministry through this podcast and through your website and through your writing. Yeah. But you made a, a decision to leave pastoral ministry, which I'm sure was hard in many ways. But um, in a sense, if you realized being in that context put pressure on me and shame on me mm. in a way that doesn't allow me, allow me to experience myself as beloved, it yeah. doesn't allow me and, and puts other kinds of pressures on me to evaluate other people in different ways. I can see, I can see why, you know, it, it, this might really surprise people, but that for your own spiritual growth, it might've been necessary to leave pastoral ministry so that you could grow as a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there was a weekend, well, there, there was about six weeks that my wife and I were, we were going down to her parents. Um, this was a couple of years ago. Um, to help them with some some health issues, and and then we would go to their church, um, and and it was a church in my denomination. I knew some of the people there, um, but I was, you know, even then I was wrestling with this, you know, yes. and um, 
I, I finally told my wife, you know, I said, um, every time I go there, and this is not their fault, but mm-hmm. every time I go there, I stop being Ben and I start being Reverend DeLong and I can't stand that guy. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, yes. Well, what's so interesting about that is, of course, that's the work of stage three to care about authenticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. But then when you say, um, and I, I want to be able to love the person I am. I don't want to have to play a role that yeah. I can't stand. I want to love the person I am because I understand God is love and, and this is what life is all about. Um, that that becomes, uh, you know, th- those would to me be signs of your own, uh, you know, continuing growth in, in, in this process. And of course, we're never done. Yeah, uh, we're never done. Uh, you know, especially when you think how Jesus defines uh, love as love for God, love for self, love for neighbor. Because if we love our neighbors ourselves, we need to love ourselves. And yeah. I always think in today's world, we have to add a fourth dimension. It was obviously important to Jesus. He just lived in a context where he didn't have to specify it. It was implicit mm. in love for God, self, and neighbor. But that's love for the earth. Mm. Because when yeah. we live in a time when the earth is under such threat, um, you know, neither my neighbor nor myself are going to do very well if the earth is, is in turmoil. So, um, so you think we're never done loving God, yeah. self, neighbor, and earth. And I, I've come to believe that one of the insights that Jesus brings to the world when he says that love for God is inseparable from love for neighbor mm, and yeah. self, that, um, that the love of God isn't a separate thing from the love of neighbor and love of self, Yeah, but they're all interwoven. And in fact, I experience the love of God when I experience love with other people and love uh, the right kind of love for myself. Yeah, and I can see how, you know, the the first three stages and, and something you you mentioned, you know, is that it's not that those other stages are bad, you know, it's just it's just part of the journey. But I, I can see how those other three stages there there are roadblocks to that love. Um, yes. you know, in stage one, you know, it's like loving others isn't really necessary because you're just no. wanting to be right. And yeah. and stage two you know, you're, you're reaching out to others, but it's very much with an agenda. Yes, um, exactly right. And in stage three, it's, you know, I, I, you're, you're almost, it's, um, it's like, I don't know, at least from my experience, there, yeah. there's a big part of it that's very much like be, becoming a hermit a little bit, just internally, um, just like really like seeking for that authenticity. You know, the, the way I say it in the book is that I think in stage three, you find community with a group of alienated, similarly alienated individuals. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and there's deep community you experience then, but it tends to be with people who are also in the same struggle, you know. Yeah. Um, and so this maturity toward uh, what I call either revolutionary love or non-discriminatory love, um, that's a term from the great uh, Latin American theologian Gustavo Gutierrez. Mm. Um, this, and, and you see this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you know, you should do perfect the way your Father in heaven is perfect. And he's not talking about technical perfection. He's talking about you should have the mature kind of love that your Father in heaven has. And what is that love? That God lets the rain and the sun fall on the good and the evil alike. Mm. In other words, God doesn't say, I'm going to let it be sunny on the good people and pour down rain on the bad people. Yeah. Well, no, actually, the 
good people need rain for their crops too. And the bad yeah. people, you know, and, and you realize, no, God gives rain and sun, not because people are good or bad, but because God is good. And because of God's love, rain and sun are given freely to everyone. And then we think, okay, for us to be perfect, that means that we come to a place where we love everyone. Mm. And obviously none of us ever arrive at this, but yeah. it changes your life when you say, my aspiration is to love with a non-discriminatory love, to love not because other people deserve it or don't, but to love because that's the kind of person I'm becoming because I'm being filled more and more with God's non-discriminatory love. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's part of part of um, my, it's, you know, almost like, it's like I'm trying to break through a cocoon, you know, for like, yes, yes. for stage four. And, and part of that is I'll have these moments where, you know, maybe it's something I experience with another person, or maybe I'm just looking up at the stars. And I just have this thought, like, all this stuff is just so silly, you know, like, <laughs> like religion and, and all the rituals and everything. And it's like, they help us get to a place, but there's like, it doesn't even matter. Like we're, we're all part of it anyway, you know? And, yeah. and, and, but then there's, there's a part of me that's still scared by that, you know, because yeah. Yeah. it's, it's leaving, it's leaving some foothold that I've had. Um, but you, and I'm not trying to shortcut your process because you'll work through this your own on your own time and pace. But you know, you might end up holding on to both of those to say, in one sense, they're silly, but yeah. in another sense, if we can use them correctly, they can become highly meaningful and useful. They and and this, you know, maybe Ben, one of the things that that people like you and I, with our own, you know, we have similar religious backgrounds in some ways, as do millions of people in America yeah. today, around the world, but. The tragedy isn't that we were in stage one. The tragedy is that we had leaders who were in stage one. Mm, and they told yeah. us we could never grow beyond it because they had never grown beyond it. Mm -hmm. And how different it would be if we had leaders in stage four who were able to tell stage one people the work, help them with the work they need to do at that stage, but not, but give them the idea, oh, it's going to be great. As soon as you're ready, there's more. And then as soon as you're ready, there's more. And, yeah. And, that's what you know that's what i hope that a, a book like this could help prepare the way for um yeah because it, it would only take one new generation of leaders mm. to create a whole different kind of learning environment for people yeah. that that doesn't have shame and that doesn't have threats and fear yeah um, yeah well actually when you talked about like holding both i mean some something that i'm working with right now is just the just the act of asking god for forgiveness mm -hmm. and it's it's there's this transition in me from saying god forgive me because you're going to punish me if i don't say these words to god like remind me of my forgiveness because i don't believe it yes. right now yes yes and yeah and you know so much of this if we do believe that god is perfect love, you know, and yeah. I know this is something you, you wrote about in your book, there's uh, the God in my closet. Mm -hmm. um, but if we do really believe that God is perfect love, then we, we start to realize things like forgiveness and worship and praise, they aren't for God. It's not like God is up there every six days thinking, wow, it's been a long time. <laughs> so 
somebody's confessed their sins to me. I need people to, you know, uh, or boy, nobody's praised me for a while. I'm not feeling very good about myself. You yeah. Know? Um, it, no, these are things that we need. Um, and, and it's so sad that we're presented them in this, in a different way. But when you think of it this way, when I confess my sins before God, it's just saying, you know, God, I could keep doing what I've been doing, but I wouldn't like who I would become if mm. I kept doing that. So I want to break up with that version of me and I want to follow it. You know, I want to pursue a different version of me. Yeah. And I, 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 I need your help in, in, in doing that. So. Mm. Mm. Well, to, to kind of, you know, center back on just this whole concept of doubt is uh, there's, there's a few things that, a few lines you had about doubt that really like popped out to me. Um, one was you, you said if faith was about love all along, we just didn't realize it. And it took doubt to help us see it. Yes. Um, you, you talk about as doubt as the doorway to love and, and doubt as being what, what saves the world. Um, and so these, these stages, you know, we, that, that doubt is in some ways kind of a fuel that moves us through these stages. Um, can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. So, um, first let me say, I just actually just was thinking about this today. I, I, I think I could have even said this more clearly in the book, but if you think about religion in general as a, as an energy source, you know, and in today's world, we have dirty energy and we have clean energy. Mm-hmm. And, and so if we keep using the dirty energy, we make ourselves sicker and less, you know, more conflicted and all the rest. And we have to learn to have clean energy. Well, I think there's sort of dirty energy religion and there's clean energy religion. Mm. And clean energy religion, it seems to me that the dynamic of it is that faith and doubt aren't enemies. Mm. but that faith and doubt are companions. And when you think almost like alternating current, you know, there's a, a transfer back and forth between faith and doubt. Yeah. And, and doubt is what says my idea isn't big enough yet. Mm. And so I need to expand. And I think when we keep expanding and expanding, uh, well, I, I'm sure you're familiar, familiar with Rob Bell. Rob Bell uh, has a very simple way of saying it. We start with me, and then we, we doubt, we, we think only being concerned about me, that's not enough. So we become concerned about we, but we tends to be the we of my tribe, mm. my race, my nation, my religion, my gender, whatever. Yeah. And then he says, eventually we say, you know what, that's not enough. So we doubt that that's enough. And we have to say, I've got to care about everything everywhere and everybody and everything everywhere. And that bigger, more expansive vision, when we say, we say, oh, I want my, I want to care about everyone and everything and everywhere, then I think we're moving into a, a state or a stage where love is really what, what draws us. And, and the fact is, it was there in stage one, you know, in stage one, you and I were told to memorize Bible verses and, mm-hmm. you know, that we were, we were a, told to approach the Bible as if it were a rule book and a roadmap, how to go to heaven versus hell and so on. But which I don't think are very helpful ideas, Um, but, uh, but they're very common and and a lot of people believe them. But the fact is, if we really paid attention to the Bible, the Bible 
told us that the greatest commandment was to love. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. And that verse about the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. That was there in the Bible. We just mm. didn't notice it, you know? Yeah. And in stage two, when we started caring about success and effectiveness and methods and techniques and all the rest, well, you know what? Part of that was techniques of learning how to be more loving. Yeah. Yeah. How, do, how can I be a better husband? How can I be a better parent? How can I be a better friend? How can I be a better pastor or a engineer or teacher or whatever it is? Yeah. And all of these things, there, there's love there. Mm. And even in doubt to say, I love the truth. I love honesty. I yeah. love accuracy. Uh, and I love the courage to face even inconvenient truths. Mm. Well, love is growing there. And I think if we see it in that way, Love was there all along, but it yeah. just it took doubt to push us beyond uh, to see that it was really the the most important thing all along. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can I can see that, um, and what you're talking about. I mean, I can see it in like in my marriage, you know, of of you know you um, you go through life thinking that a certain way of of being in the world is the right way or the yeah. the best way and. And, and for me, it was just, you know, I'm just going to make people happy. You know, I'm just going to do what I need to do. And, you know, you, I get married and that doesn't, it's not conducive for a healthy marriage after all. And, <laughs> and so then you start, then you start to doubt that, well, maybe that's not the right way. Or, yes. or when, you know, my wife comes to me and says like, you know, when you did this, it hurt me to think, oh man, maybe that's not the best way to operate. <laughs> yes. In fact, that's a beautiful example because if you had decided not to doubt, and yeah. you said, no, there's a Bible verse that says you're supposed to submit to me. <laughs> yeah. People can always find a Bible verse. Like there's yeah. that saying, there's always a tweet. Well, there's always a Bible verse. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you could have refused to doubt what you were currently doing and just mm. double down. Yeah. And, and it would have really hurt your wife and hurt your marriage and ultimately hurt you too. So yeah it, it, that's a beautiful example what, mm. the reality is trying to tell us something <laughs> yeah 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 well and, um you know this you know as you talked about this love um you know we we end up being able to see that this love is about you know it's not just me or we it's it's everything and and you know a, a big part of that today is just you know loving people who think differently than us and that, yes. that seems to be a very a needed thing right now, you know, whether it be politics or different religions. And um, you have this, oh, go ahead. No, I, I just want to say, yes, that, that's absolutely right. And this is where, like, if you're in stage one and you think our group is the only right group, and then you have stage two strengths to say, and we have great power to make our group dominate, um, and you can create an awful lot of suffering and pain. Yeah. And, and, and you can hurt an awful lot of people. And you can dehumanize yourself in the process, too. So, yeah. Yeah. I, but go ahead. Well, and, um, you have this this concept or this line in, in the book that um, it's something that, I, that I, I believe in. It's something that I've had a hunch, you know, in for a long time. But, again, it's one of those things that it's hard to sort of detach yourself from. But you talk about how you know, God seems to be happy to remain anonymous um, mm. or, or to even be known by other names or to be an incognito altogether. And, and you, you talk about how these stages, you know, it's not just, it's not just like Christians, you know, in stage three or four, like when you see 
you know, as, as I've gotten to be more familiar with like Muslims, you know, that are at stage four, obviously I'm from a Christian perspective, but their, their stage fourness as a Muslim, like looks so beautiful, you know? Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is an interesting thing you find when you have a, a Muslim who has come to understand that love is what matters most. And you have a Christian who comes to understand love is what matters most. And you have a Jew who understands and, and they meet each other, they're safe in each other's presence. Mm, they don't yeah. have to pretend they think the same about everything, yeah. but they're safe in each other's presence. And they can be curious about one another's differences. And they have something in common. And that is that the Jew has Jewish friends who would criticize him for being so friendly to Muslims and Christians. <laughs> yeah. And the Christian has Christian friends he criticized. And the Muslim has Muslim friends he criticized. Um, yeah. But that is, to me, uh, wherever I experience that, I just see, but this is how healing happens. Mm. And, um, and, and what's interesting at that moment is my Jewish friend says to me, Brian, I need you to be a better Christian so mm. that you can influence your fellow Christians so that they don't hate me so much. And my Muslim friend oh, wow. says the same thing to me. And I yeah. say the same thing to them. We, we each want one another to become more loving versions. And, and I'll tell you, I've, I, can, I could tell you so many stories of this happening when I'm in those kinds of conversations uh, where uh, my Jewish friend then says, you know, I think that's what Jesus was all about. Mm. And, and when I see it that way, you know, suddenly Jesus, instead of being this barrier, uh, people say, oh, that's what he was about. And, yeah. and he really becomes the bridge. Mm. You know, when, as we progress through these stages, um, you know, when I, when I was sort of going through my um, difficult time of, of going from two to three, and yes. just feeling like, you know, this isn't working. Um, you know, I, I really, you know, there was a time where I really thought, well, I'm, I'm just going to become an atheist. I mean, that's, that's the only option. And, and to now be on this other side of it where it's like, I love Jesus more than ever. Um, and he's, you know, I, I have this, um, one of the chapters in, in my first book, the way I end it, because it's a chapter about hell and, and talking about how, you know, we're, we're taught to fear hell and God putting us in hell. And, and I just say, you know, I don't, I don't need God to save me from hell because he's already done that because he showed me who I really am. And that's why I love Jesus. Mm. And, but there's this, you know, so what, what would you say to somebody? Cause I, I know, you know, that people would look at this progression cause I know I would, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and say, well, what, you know, what happens to faith? What, what happens to beliefs? You know, like, like, where do they go? Yeah. So one of the things I think we do is we, we make a distinction between faith and beliefs. Mm, yeah. Um, a, a great example in, in the New Testament, in the, in the book of Romans in chapter four, Paul writes this whole thing about Abraham. And he's, and Abraham is presented as kind of the father of faith. Mm. Well, what's interesting is when you think about it, Abraham had almost no beliefs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he didn't have any Christian theology. Uh, he didn't believe, he didn't have uh, circumcision when he started out. Yeah. He didn't have sacrifices. None of that. Yeah. Um, he had faith, uh, 
but there weren't a lot of beliefs. Mm. Um, if you want to say there were beliefs, you might say, well, I believe that someone called me to leave my father's house and go out not knowing where I was going mm. um, yeah. and made a promise that if I would go on this journey out of certainty, really, the place where I knew how everything worked, yeah. leave that place, go out and become a refugee, really, is what he, he did, or become a, a traveler. Um, yeah. And that, that if I did, something great was waiting for me. You know? mm. So faith is that, in some ways, faith is that courage to say yes to the invitation to go on an adventure. Mm. It, it's, it's, a, it's an attitude. It's a, a posture of the heart. It's a, it's a willingness. Maybe the best word for it is it's a desire. Mm. It's a desire for something bigger, yeah. um, something deeper and more. And, um, and then beliefs become just, in some ways, they become shared opinions or they become ideas. And they're interesting, but we're constantly needing to out, uh, outgrow them and fine-tune them and expand them. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, but, yeah, I, I'm not against beliefs. They're just not the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. the point is to love God, to love our neighbor, to love ourselves. Uh, and that, that love is what really, what really is the point. Yeah. Well, and it's, um, I was listening to someone talk about this just lately, and, and I was familiar with this concept, but they were just talking about, you know, what it, what it means to be saved and, and what Jesus was talking about, you know, a lot of times when he talked about being saved and that it was, you know, and, and there's a lot of it that was saving, you know, saving humanity, saving people from their sins. But there was a lot of it also that was saving a particular people from, you know, a historical disaster that was coming on them, yeah. you know, with the the Romans conquering Jerusalem. And, and, and it's just interesting because, you know, there's never been um, a time where it's been more clear that there's, there are disasters that we're heading towards yes. and, and there are, you know, that God is calling us to repent in certain ways to, yes. to help us steer away from those. And, and you talk about just um, how, you know, doubt is such a, a part of us shifting in that so that we can be a part of, you know, literally saving the world, whether it be, whether it's about climate change or whether it's about, you know, war, whether it's about, you know, all the millions of people that are starving, there's so many ways where we can literally help save the world. Yes. And if the way, it's just like you were saying in your relationship with your wife, if you realize that the way you're living with your wife is hurting her, mm. then, you realize that, then you have to doubt that way of living with your wife and you have yeah. to question it and say, could there be a better way? Yeah, and, and you think now, how are we living with the earth? How are mm. we living in our relationship with money? How are we living in our relationship with people of other races? How are we living, you know, every dimension of our lives? And you say, I'm open. And of course, the biblical word for this is repent. In fact, yeah. you could make a case that the word repent is what I'm calling doubt. Mm. Because um, repent means give something a second thought. Something you've never questioned before, be willing to question it and give it a second thought. Yeah. And not to throw it away, but in pursuit of even bigger and greater and deeper wisdom and, mm. and understanding. So, mm. uh, so uh, that, that's uh, suddenly you realize, yeah, faith and doubt go together. Faith mm. makes me keep leaning forward to want more. 
And then that means I'm willing to confront and, and break open my beliefs and say, is this really adequate? Or maybe I need to open up in, in bigger ways. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And this has been a fantastic, just beautiful time with you, Brian. I've really appreciated it. Um, I So w- one thing I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to start asking everybody that I talk with, I, I've sort of been steering the podcast to explore like what it means to be whole or to live in wholeness. And, and, um, you know, I've something I feel like I'm learning is that a big part of wholeness or whatever word you want to use is you're accepting yourself. And there's a big part of those stages where you're like, you're accepting these different parts of yourself. Um, but I, um, I wonder for, for you, like these days, what, what, what's helping you live in wholeness? Mm, What a good question. Well, you know, it's interesting. You you said something about being a hermit before. And one of the things that COVID has done for all of us, you know, normally I'm traveling all the time and speaking mm-hmm. and all the rest. And so since March, I've just been uh, home. Right? And that feels like it's been a good thing for wholeness. Uh, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, there's a certain sense that when, you know, as a preacher, when your life as a preacher, you know this, that every time you get up in front of a group, you're having to prove yourself again. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and to go for all of these months without having to prove myself to anybody, that's, mm. that's, that's a good thing. And of course, you know, on, on your best days, you don't think about proving yourself. You just think about trying yeah. to be a blessing to people. But yeah. it's still there. It's in that second member of that brain committee, that mammalian <laughs> yeah. brain that's always aware of how am I fitting in with the herd? How do I, how's, how's the room uh, responding to me? That's sort of mm. So yeah, that's been just that quiet. You know, I, I live in Florida and um, I have some mango trees in my yard and every day I go out and I just notice the difference. That bud is a little bigger today on that mm. branch tip than it was <laughs> yesterday. And uh, and just the chance to slow down enough to enjoy those things. Oh, it's been, I mean, there's been so much pain and so much hardship with COVID. I don't want to minimize that, but yeah. I, 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 in taking seriously the pain, I also don't want to minimize some of these unexpected blessings, I think, that, that have been there for, for many of mm. us. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, once again, um, your new book is called Faith After Doubt why your beliefs stopped working and what to do about it. Um, and so that's releasing in January, correct? Yes. Yep. And um, I'll, which will work out because I'll, I'll release this episode right about then. So that, sure. that'll work out. Um, so is there anything else you're working on or if you want to remind people also how to connect with you? Yeah, my website is brianmclaren.net. Folks might be interested. I did a six uh, episode podcast. People can find links there for that. Um, I, uh, I've got a couple of eBooks folks might be interested in. One is on bias. One is on, uh, authoritarianism. Um, but the main thing right now is I, I hope people find this book, the faith after doubt helpful for them. Um, and I, I hope, um, most of us, even if a person thinks, yeah, I don't really have a big struggle with doubt. I bet they know somebody who does, and, mm-hmm. and this could be useful for somebody they know or for them to read, to better understand what that son or daughter or parent or sibling or friend is going through yeah well thank you brian it's been such a joy to to you know delve into your readings over the years and how much they've helped me and just as much of a joy to to get to know you well thanks pleasure to be with you keep up the great work with the podcast all right thank you 